O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. That's Psalm 3, which along with Psalms 1 and 2 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, January the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're looking, continue to look at messianic prophecies in Isaiah, with Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 23. Also, in uh, we're beginning a look at the uh, letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, which are some of the finest um, theology that you'll find in the entire Bible in a condensed form. Uh, and then in Mark's gospel, the beginning of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So, with the um, Isaiah prophecy, what we get is a, a look at and a, and a peek into, first, who is God? Th- that's a, a, a great place to start theology, right? Is, is who is God? And so he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. So who knows all these things? And it's God's argument to Job, or his, his response better is a way to say that. He's not arguing with Job. It's a response to Job. Because what he's saying is, were you there in all these things? He begins, though, by saying, who is it that darkens counsel without knowledge? And so Job has believed that he knows some things, and so he challenges God, and God's response is, who, who is it that, that thinks he has some knowledge here? So let's, let's begin at the beginning. Were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Do you know all these things? And ultimately what Job is sort of, he is not forced to because he has options, uh, but what he chooses to do is bow the knee and accept that God knows stuff that he doesn't know, and if it's probable <laughs> that what God knows that he doesn't know explains a lot of stuff. But there's no way God can transmit all that knowledge, because it's knowledge that's, that's honestly not even uh, fit and proper, but it's not transferable, because it, it comes from having been eternal. So that's exactly how Isaiah begins this. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, there's no one like him. And so there's no analog for him. And and he is so far above us that he's to be incomprehensible in some ways. He, we know about him what he chooses to make known about himself. And he chooses to make a lot known about himself. So it's not that he's hiding things about who he is, but there's so much that he is that we literally don't have the ability to comprehend it. 
So he goes on with, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The argument here is essentially you have nothing to fear if you're following God. If, if you have his protection, then you have nothing to fear because there's nothing that he can't do. And so don't worry about the things that you worry about. God's in charge. It's, it, it's got to do with omniscience, which is God knowing everything, and omnipotence, that he has the power to do his will goes on to say, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So this idol can't be anything at all, because it was made by human hands. And therefore, it, it's less than the one who made it, is the argument. Sort of like us, who bear the likeness and image of God. We're not idols, but we're less than the one who created us. And so he goes on to, to talk about that, that, we, that he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses the wood, seeks out a craftsman, and sets up the idol. In other words, he... He's, he's too impoverished to bring an offering, which could have been turtle doves. He's too impoverished for an offering, but he's got enough money for an idol. It's, it's a choice how we choose to spend our money. And idols come in all shapes and sizes. They come in the shape and size of a house, if that becomes an idol. It, it's a child. It's a, a spouse. It's a person. It's a church. It's all kinds of different things are idols. It depends depends on what we consider to be our God, and, and what we worship is quite literally our God. So if you look at your life, look and say, what is it that my life would tell you I worship? Do you not know? Have you not? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's an interesting choice of words. And it's intended to be an interesting choice of words about the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Because remember when Moses sent the spies into the land? They came back talking about how big these people were. And in our eyes, we looked like grasshoppers to them. And so he's saying exactly the same thing here is, is that no matter what you think of yourself, it doesn't ultimately matter. It's your God that matters. And all the inhabitants of the earth look like grasshoppers to him who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. So it's an argument for God's omniscience and his omnipotence, which those are good things. But unless he has also said, I created you in my image and I love that which is created in my image, then it's just a fearsome thing. And that's not Isaiah's point. It's intended to be a comforting thing because the people to whom he writes this prophecy are those who are in covenant with that God. And so it's intended to bring them comfort and assurance 
confidence. In the gospel today, in Mark, Mark's very clear from the beginning what he believes and who this is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not mincing any words. He's telling you right at the outset who he believes this Jesus is, and he is the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He could have also said, and also in Malachi, there's a promise that a messenger will precede the coming of the Lord to prepare the people to receive him. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And and that is our message as well to those who are outside the covenant those who have not been baptized. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, in the Old Testament, in the period in which John is, is speaking, there was more involved in the forgiveness of sins than just baptism. Baptism was sort of the end of the process. The beginning of the process was uh, the sacrificial system. And once you'd done that, then you would go take a mikvah. You'd take a, a ritual bath. And that would cleanse you of sins. And, and that, the symbolism of that would be that, that those sins had literally gone away. They had been washed away in those waters. And so John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is good news for the poor, certainly, because they no longer have to make those sacrifices. There's a new way of reconciliation with God. And reconciliation always requires forgiveness in, in human relationships as well. And so we've got to do what's necessary to get that uh, forgiveness, and it begins with confessing our sins to the other person. And so here, John says, you come and you confess your sins, and then you go into the water of baptism, and you're forgiven. And so it's a prophetic word about the new covenant. John is the sort of the, the last prophet and priest of the old covenant, but at the same time, the first prophet and priest of the new covenant because he's, he's talking about a different way to get reconciliation with God. And, and ultimately, in John's gospel, what we see is, is that he's very clear about how sins are taken away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John's expanded the work of the Messiah beyond just a, a, a Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah of the whole world. And he is the sacrifice which is sufficient to take away the sins of the world. And so baptism is the only sacrament necessary for that in the church. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. I mean, John had a crowd. But people were coming to confess their sins, not just to be baptized. They weren't just in it to go out there and say, okay, I'm going to get this. No, confessing their sins. And then we see in other Gospels, John speaking with the people who had come, and they're asking him questions like, well, what do I do now? This is my situation in life. What do I do now? And John says, okay, if you're in that position, then don't do these things, and only do these things. So it's a change of life. And all the country of Judea, so they were all going out to him. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So he's likening him to this Elijah figure because that would, these things would have described Elijah as well. And the Malachi prophecy says one 
Elijah will come first. And Jesus says, Elijah has come. And he's pointing to John the Baptist when he says that. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John was proclaiming a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus goes to be baptized. Does that mean Jesus is confessing sin? No, he's identifying with sinners. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. In other words, this was the right thing to do. It was to fulfill all righteousness that Jesus be baptized. God was pleased with him for going into the water of baptism in spite of the fact that he didn't need to. And so the proclamation is from heaven is not that he's been forgiven of his sins. No, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Mark tells us right from the beginning that he is writing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And right here in the 13th verse, we hear God saying, you're my beloved son. So do you get it? <laughs> so in the the other thing to know about Mark, I don't know if you noticed this, is when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and blah, blah, blah. So pay attention to that, because in Mark's gospel, immediately is always how things happen in Mark's gospel. It, it'll be one of the hallmarks of his writing. Now let's get into this epistle, which is, like I said, one of the finest pieces of theology you're ever going to read. And if it doesn't cause you to want to worship, then then you missed it. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So I, I didn't take this on myself. It's God's will that I be an apostle of Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are children of God as well because of Jesus is what he's going to tell us. So he's greeting us, the, the Gentiles, greeting the, the, the people who are in the church in Ephesus, who were largely, in fact, Gentiles. <clears throat> and so he's greeting them, and then he begins to, um, to, to say, you're brothers of mine. So he, this, this guy who has been this Pharisee all his life and who would have looked askance at the, at the Gentiles except for the, his ability to make money in, in his craft on the backs of the Gentiles, now calls them brothers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So now go back to that Isaiah passage and remember about this foundation of the world thing, that, that we um, know that God is omniscient because he is the only one capable of being omniscient because he created all things, and so he's the only one who can also then know all things. But more than knowing is understanding. Right? I mean, I can give you dates and places and all that kind of stuff, but understanding history requires a different level of knowledge. And so here, that's what he's saying is, is that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. God's always known that you were going to be his children. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's giving us information about God in a way that, that in some ways, trans well, it does. In not in some ways, yeah. In some ways, transcends what Isaiah knew about God. Isaiah saw it, 
that it would come, but did he understand completely what would come? That's a totally different question. And But Paul can speak from the perspective of standing on the other side of the life of Christ, the death and the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He stands on a different side of that, so he has better and more complete knowledge of Jesus. But he says from the beginning, this was God's plan, and he predestined us to become his children, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. It wasn't just what he did. It was a a plan and a purpose that he had before the foundation of the world was our redemption. So he he set a purpose and then accomplished it by his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things heaven and things on earth. That would take a little bit of unpacking to figure out exactly what he's talking about, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there that word is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he doesn't uh, take counsel with other beings to decide what the best course of action is. He does it in the counsel of his own will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed in the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. What a beautiful passage, but what also a thick, rich theological passage. He's talking about salvation, but he's also saying that that whole idea for salvation preceded the foundation of the world and that God knew you and had plans for you before he created anything at all. He saw all of this salvation history unfold, including you, if you're in Christ Jesus. And so it's a place of rest. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of hope. It's the best place, in fact, to be.